to say was that last week, as we ended, Jesus had fed 4,000. These were 4,000 Gentiles in the, in the region of Decapolis. Decapolis just means 10 cities. We talked about that. And he put before them enough food not only to feed them, but to completely satisfy or to fill them. Even his own disciples did not think that it was possible to satisfy these people, especially where they were at. They were in a desert place. They were in a place where there was no markets. Uh, there were no fields even if they wanted to walk through and pick up some grain to, to eat that. They didn't have anything available to them. They weren't near Casey's, you know. But uh, what they did have was they had Jesus. Whether they realized it or not, they had the source of all bread. They had the source of all food. And so Jesus once again proves to his disciples that he's able to do way more than they even think. These are the guys that have been with him all along. And not only that, but we talked about that a couple of weeks before that. He had fed upwards of fifteen to 25,000 people from, from just a few loaves of bread. And this time he had seven. So to be able to feed that many people should have been a small thing because this was a literal 4,000 Gentiles. So Jesus blows their idea of him out of the water by once again proving to them that he is way greater than they even know. So as I pondered the meal that Jesus had fed this multitude and uh, in the passage that we studied a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 7, verse 27 through 28, where Jesus had said when asked of by a Gentile woman to cast the demon out of her, out of her daughter that had been tormenting her, Jesus responded by saying to her, he said, let the little children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she responded to him saying, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And we talked about that, but what I wanted to say is, you know, I want to point out that this is quite a statement of faith from this Gentile lady. The Gentile woman had more faith in the God of Jacob, which is what they called him, the God of Jacob, who became Israel. He had more faith, she had more faith in the God of Jacob than those who were actually sons of Jacob, the Jewish people. Jesus here refers to the Jews as the children and speaks of the Gentiles as the, the little puppy dogs. It was a fond term. And so... Um, Jesus here refers to these people this way. Not only is this what Jesus ended up doing by literally feeding the Jewish people, but also he took some of the crumbs. He took a smaller meal and he went to the Gentiles, showing his disciples that he didn't just come for the Jewish people. Because if you remember with me, the Great Commission says, Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples. And if this is the Great Commission that Jesus is going to leave them with, he can't just say at the end of his ministry, oh, and by the way, go to all nations. He has to tell them that at the end, but hopefully what he does, what Jesus does is unlike what we do. We say, do as I say, not as I do. And Jesus says, remember when I went to the Gentiles? Yeah, you need to go there too. You need to go to the Jewish people first, but also to the Gentiles, because that's how God was going to bless the nation. Through the, Jew or the people was through the Jewish nation. Well, this is beyond what they would, would think because they thought that the Messiah was coming to rule and to reign and to provide a kingdom for them. He was going to come and save them. He was going to set up his reign as an earthly king. Well, no doubt he's going to do that down the line, but that was not his main purpose at this point. His main purpose was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost, to lay down his life, to do this pattern of 
serving and sacrificing so that we could indeed follow what he did. So as I was reading this week, it's interesting what you think of, but I was reading in my daily reading because that's what we do. We go through a chronological reading. We're reading through the Bible chronologically this year. And what I found is that as I was reading in Isaiah chapter 49, and this is scripture that they would have had, that they were memorizing. It was from the scripture in Isaiah chapter 49. It was one of their prophets. And in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 through 6, I'm going to read through it. Um, And actually, I think I might even have it up there on the screen for you. Yeah. I only have the sixth verse because I'm going to emphasize it. But what it says is, uh, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother, and he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. He's talking about Jesus here. This is the Messiah that he's speaking of. He says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant. Now, first of all, I want to point out that this is kind of, it kind of seems uh, schizophrenic. Because basically, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and the Lord is speaking in first person from the person of the Father and also the Son. He's speaking to his servant, uppercase servant, which is Jesus. But the Father and the Son are kind of having this conversation. So in verse 3, it says, He said to me, the Lord said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the first time he says servant, he's talking about the nation of Israel. But in verse 4, then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. In verse 5, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his uppercase servant, which is Jesus, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So that's talking about Jesus. His ministry was to bring God's servant Jacob, which later becomes Israel. Jacob means heel catcher, or basically, you know, somebody that's not known as a good person, to, uh, to being Israel, which means governed by God. So submitted to God versus a heel catcher, a of a supplanter, someone who does not do the ways of God. But then you get to this passage here where it says that his ministry was to bring Jacob back into the fold, to bring the hearts of the people back to the God of their, their, their father, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they boasted about. So then in verse 6 it says, Indeed he says. So in verse 5 it said that his purpose was to bring Jacob back to him. But in verse 6, it says a greater thing. It says, Indeed, he says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So this purpose was dual. He was sending them to the nation of Israel to turn their hearts back to his father, their father, what they claimed to be the God they followed because they kept going to these other nations and worshiping idols. But Jesus' purpose also was to be a light to the Gentiles, you and I. I don't know how many of us in here probably have any Jewish background in this, but it's probably not many. So God sent Jesus not only to the nation of Israel, but also to us because we're the little dogs. We're, we need to hear from him. We need 
to get His Word and to have it planted in our hearts to see that His grace is sufficient for us as well for salvation. We've got a sin problem just like every other man. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So He offers us this, this Son of His as our you know, payment for our sin. So this passage shows that God's plan to use His people Israel to glorify His name. But many would argue that because they didn't recognize Jesus in His first coming, that indeed He hasn't fulfilled His promise to glorify His name in the nation of Israel. But it's not true because despite them, and many times despite us, God still blesses other people. So in the nation of Israel, God blesses the world not because of what they do, but because of who He sends through them. And that's the Messiah that was promised to come through the lineage of David, Jesus Christ. So he does this despite their unbelief. And I, I thought that was comforting because there's many times when I live my life and I claim to follow God and yet my life proves that I'm really living in unbelief in some areas and yet God still in His grace and in His mercy can bless other people through me. So it's one thing for God to glorify Himself in a nation whose beginnings were brought together from one man and his descendants. They were all blood, right? They're relatives. But for him to glorify his name in a people that were from diverse backgrounds, don't even speak the same languages, don't have the same skin color, don't have the same heritage, that's a far greater work to take a massive uh, mixed multitude of people, bring them together and to bring glory to his name through their works. And it's funny to me because if you think about it, and even if you look around, many of you live in the same community, but had it not been for this Bible study, you may not have met each other living in the same, you know, county. And so it's funny to me, too, because I live, you know, I still live up in St. Francis County, and we appreciate your prayers because we still want to come down here. Uh, but the main idea is that God brings together people from different counties, different nations, uh, completely different viewpoints, different worlds. And it's funny because a couple of weeks ago, we had a guy that was a, a he used to be a Muslim. He used to follow Islam. And the Lord saved him. And because of that, he came here to tell us all about how God saved him. Now, had we uh, not had this connection in Jesus Christ, he probably never would. I would have never met the man. He used to be a hitman for Yasir at Arafat in, in the Middle East. And so God's grace is able to change lives. And when he does that, he brings together this diverse group of people that without him never would have met, never would have even hung out. And so I love that about him because he does an amazing thing. And the world looks at us and they go, how did those people ever meet each other? Jesus Christ, he's the only answer. And so <clears throat> I thought that was interesting. So um, let's go ahead and get to the text since we haven't gotten there yet. So in verse 8 it says, They ate and they were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. This is from the meal they had last week uh, that we studied about last week. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. They were full. They were getting ready to go home, and Jesus didn't want to send them home with an empty stomach. So verse 10 says, Immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now I looked it up. I couldn't find a map with Dalmanutha on it. And so I searched a little deeper, and I looked a little bit more, because sometimes the names of towns change, right? Uh, well, Dalmanutha is not on most maps, but in Matthew's account, in chapter 15, verse 39, the area of Magdala 
is mentioned as the spot that they travel to next. So this is just another name for the area. This area is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which makes sense. They were in Decapolis. That's on the east side, or if I turn myself around, the east side. This is Israel. This is Decapolis. This is Dalmanutha or Magdala. So in order to reach this, they had to cross the Sea of Galilee. So it makes sense uh, geographically. Now, the name of this place, Magdala, should actually register with some of you because if you've ever heard of a woman named Mary Magdalene, she's actually from there. And it actually, <clears throat> excuse me, in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it mentions that she's Mary called Magdalene. So it's kind of like sometimes people call my wife, they call her Annapolis because that's where she's from, Annapolis. You know, get over here, you know. And, and basically they would call her Magdalene because they were kind of like us with Mike's in the United States. There's a million of them. And over there, it seems like every story has multiple Marys. And so it makes sense that they'd call her by the name that, of the place that she was from. But actually, it's funny because Jesus has already made his mark in the region of Magdala because if you remember in Luke chapter 8, it mentions that Mary Magdalene uh, she was walking with Jesus and it mentions her specifically because it expresses that Jesus had already cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. So she was a woman who had been touched personally by the Lord and because of that, she was still walking with him. Now it's funny to me because you think about how when Jesus touches a life, it's like they want to stay with him. He's the one that set me free from my thing. Well, Mary Magdalene stays with Jesus all the way up to the Last Supper. And then in the book of Acts, if you turn into there, she's actually up in the upper room when they're praying and they're waiting like Jesus told them to for the Holy Spirit to come and to send them out in power. So Mary Magdalene, she knew her Savior. She was always with him. Anyway, that being said, he gets to the area of Dalmanutha, Magdala as we're calling it, and shows up. And guess what? There's somebody there waiting for him to give him a, a wonderful reception. Because Jesus, you know, he's been gone. So he's coming back to the nation that he came through, Israel, and he doesn't get a warm reception. Not at all. Actually, it says there in verse 11, as soon as he arrived, the Pharisees came out, verse 11, and began to dispute with him or to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So here comes the greeting committee. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I'm gone from home for a little while, it's kind of nice to, you know, for somebody to say, hey, I missed you. Well, Jesus doesn't get that. He's the son of God. He gets this committee that comes to argue with him some more. Everybody wants a little bit more of that, right? Everybody likes to be argued with. So in a way, they greet him with great pomp, and they begin again to dispute with him. They start immediately arguing with him. They seek from him a sign in order to test him. Now, isn't it funny that he can do signs? He can do miracles, and they're asking him to do signs and miracles, but if they'd have been paying attention at all, he'd already done that. He's fed upwards of fifteen to 25,000 people. He's fed 4,000 people from seven loaves of bread. Um, let's think. He's cast out demons. He's healed people that were deaf and had a speech impediment. He's made the blind to see. I don't know what they're looking for, but it says specifically there, that they're looking from a, for a sign from heaven. Now, if you remember from Mark chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, I believe, Jesus had actually already been given a sign from heaven at his baptism. 
If you remember, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the baptism of Jesus. Now, I've been baptized. I don't know about you guys, but when I was baptized, I looked up to heaven. I didn't hear anything. I was just obedient to the Lord. But Jesus had a special baptism because when he was baptized, what happened is, is um, I have it in here. It says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and an audible voice came from heaven that said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So they were seeking a sign, but what they didn't realize, they'd already been given one. Not only that, but he was fulfilling the prophecy in the Old Testament that they claimed to know inside and out. And I guarantee they did know it. They knew it up here, but they didn't know it down here. They had all of the book knowledge, but they didn't have the, the soft heart that would cause them to be able to understand what the Lord was showing them. But before I'm too hard on the Pharisees, it's important to see that according to their scriptures, they were supposed to test anybody that would come along and be a prophet. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, oh, she's got it. Thank you. Rock. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, <clears throat> chapter uh, verse 1 through 5, it says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, this is somebody that can do signs and wonders, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's important we look at this, and it's kind of muddy the way he words it, but what he's saying is there's going to be people that come amongst you that can do signs and wonders. But if they do these signs and wonders, and then afterwards they tell you, let us follow after other gods, then they're not from the Lord, because one of the commandments says, you shall, have, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. You shall have no other gods before Him. So that was like one of the initial, like the biggies. And so he says, even if he can do signs and wonders, don't follow him because he's not from me. Now, we tend to think that if somebody can do signs and wonders, they must know the Lord. But the reality is, is that's not what Scripture teaches. Signs and wonders are neat, but if they cause you to walk away from the Lord, or if the prophet that does them tells you, let's go worship other gods, let's do things that are contrary to God's word, then they're not sent from God. And so that's important to make that distinction, because if you remember with me in Exodus, when Moses went to take the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He went to Pharaoh, and so what did Mo he sent Moses with the staff, and he said, okay, what I want you to do is throw it on the ground, and when you do, it's going to turn into a serpent. Well, what do Pharaoh's magicians do? They throw their staff on the ground, and it turns to a serpent. And so signs and wonders can be do done by those that are not of the Lord. They can be you know, empowered somehow, and I don't understand how by demonic spirits. And so, but what I wanted to remember also is that in that particular instance, when they both created or caused there to be snakes on the ground, the cool thing to me is that the serpent that Moses had made, because he was a prophet of the Lord, swallowed up the snake that the other magician had made, so, or the magician had made. So greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Even though that there will be people that will come along and there will be only mere counterfeits of what God can do.
but they will be counterfeits. You will have to know the real McCoy in order to discern the difference between the real McCoy and someone who's just a counterfeit. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees here. They're accusing him. They're saying, hey, give us a sign. Show us the fireworks display and then we'll follow you. But the reality is, is they're already kind of set in place. They're really just trying to find some way to discredit who he is. They're trying to get him to play, basically do a dog and pony show to prove himself to them. But the reality is, is that the Son of God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. And so he responds, verse 12, says, He sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? If you remember from other passages, it says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, first of all, let's look at his immediate reaction to their unbelief. It says that he sighed. And at first glance, it would seem that this is the same reaction that Jesus had last week as we were studying before he healed the deaf man who had a speech impediment. Remember with me or look back to chapter 7, verse 34. It says that Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed. I mentioned that that particular word in the original Greek actually means, um, it's, it's pronounced stenatso, which is the next slide, which means to murmur or pray inaudibly with grief or to groan. We talked about how it was kind of, as he was looking at this man, he, he was groaning at the, the result of sin in the world and how people are, are born with impediments of their speech and they can't hear and they can't see and everything's been muddied. But in today's passage, the word used for side actually includes the word deeply. It says he sighed deeply. Uh, in the original language, it's kind of the same word, but it's different. It says astinazo, but it says anastinazo, which is more of an intense kind of sigh. It means that he murmured with grief. He groaned intensely. He's distressed. He's looking at these Pharisees who had his word, but they, even though they had his word, they weren't really listening. They didn't know the intention of it. They, didn't know, they knew the word, but they didn't know the God of the word. They didn't have a relationship with him. They were missing the point. His law wasn't to make them righteous. It was to show them that they didn't have righteousness, and so they were going to need the righteousness of God. When we study God's word, oftentimes I think what happens is we, we kind of gloss over the things that we have problems with obeying, and we highlight the stuff we're really good at, and then we walk away going, I'm doing pretty good. I'm okay. I'm righteous. And that's what the Pharisees did. They go, hey, did you see how well I followed that one? But the reality is, is that God's not interested in showing us how great we are. He's not interested in beating us down either, by the way. What God wants to do is he wants to highlight the things we're doing good in, because we do need encouragement. We do need to keep walking by faith. We do need to see that God's being faithful even when it feels like he's not. But we also need to know where we lack. Because if we know where we lack, we will, when we're in the presence of God and when we're reading his word, we won't be proud and we won't be boastful. We will actually be humbled in his presence and we'll need him even more, which is a beautiful thing because we don't like to need other people. I don't know about you guys, but I like to be able to be self-sufficient. But the problem is, is that self-sufficiency can lead us to self-righteousness. How many times do you, have you called somebody self-righteous or been called that? Like, you think you're holier than thou. Well, the reality is, is if you think that, you do need to hear that. You're not. Jesus is the only one that is good. 
but we do need to be humbled, and being in God's presence will do that. If we're regularly in the attendance of church, it's not so that we can be churchy. It's not so that we can know churchies, and it's not so that we can boast and tell other people how great we are. It's so that we can be in His presence and be around other people that are being humbled by Him, and so that we can be encouraged. So Jesus, when He sighs here deeply, He's sighing at the fact that they had the prophecy, they had the law, they had everything that God gave to humankind in word form, and they probably carried it around on scrolls, but they were missing the point. And so Jesus groans because He sees how hard their hearts are. And He groans when He sees our hard hearts. We carry around our Bible and we miss the point. He groans because He desires so much more for us. So... Verse 13 says that he left them and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. How sad it is when Jesus wants to come and he wants to teach us something and our hearts are so hard that he says, you know what? I'm going to depart from you. Now, what I want to tell you though is that when the Lord sometimes seemingly departs from us, it's so that when we're going through that desert place, we'll realize we left him, we're walking away from him and he, he wants us to realize how much we need him. It's kind of like when your kids say, hey, I'm, gonna walk. I'm running away from home. I don't like it here anymore. It's tough. I'm done. And what do they do? They say, it's too hard here. I'm going somewhere easier. And so, of course, any good parent would say, all right, all right, go ahead. You know, that's what I, I'm going to say to my daughter one day. She goes, it's too hard here. I'm going to go get on my own. You know, because you're like, okay, well, you really think it's going to be easier? Go for it, you know? And then they get out from under the umbrella of your care. All of a sudden, they got to purchase their own meals. All of a sudden, they don't have a car. All of a sudden, they don't have a place to live. Those clothes that they want, that you know, extra thing at lunch, you know, that that hug. All of those things kind of add up, and they don't realize what they're missing until it's taken away from them. And so the Lord, in His grace, He steps away and He says, "All right, have what you want." But the cool thing is, is that when we really realize what we have and we get out from under that umbrella and the sun's glaring down on us and we realize what we had in him, his desire is not that we should stay gone. His desire is that we come running back and go, Lord, I had no idea how much you were doing for me. Mom and dad, I had no idea how much you loved me and how much you were taking care of me. Thank you. And we repent. We go, Lord, I'm sorry. I need you. And it's a humbling thing, but it's such a good thing because in His mercy, He reveals to us, not only do we need Him, but He is good. He's the best that that we can have. And so the Pharisees here, they're getting a little taste of what they want. They want their religion. They want their pride. You can have it. So He goes away from them. And what I want to note about this is that He doesn't go back and minister to them again. He doesn't. He, he's, he's, he's tired of arguing. He's tired of disputing. Okay, well, I'm going to go to somebody that will listen. Remember, he's just left a region of Gentiles that had no reason to trust him. He's left them, and what did they say about him? They said, wow, he does all things well. He leaves those people to go to the other side, 13 miles or so across there. He gets there, and they go, hey, we got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> That's what he comes home to. And so the Lord, in verse 14, now the disciples, they're in the boat, they've departed, and the disciples had forgotten to take bread. 
and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Verse 15 says, Then Jesus charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the disciples here are thinking about bread. They've just left, and they're like, you know what, I'm hungry. Oh, man, we've got 12 of us here, and I'm assuming there's more than 12, because it doesn't say exactly who was there. But even 12 guys, bare minimum, plus Jesus, one loaf of bread, I don't know about you guys, I can do math, that's not enough. But these guys are completely consumed with that. And so Jesus, departing from the situation with the Pharisees, he's on a completely different level. He's like, you know what, this is a bummer with the Pharisees, but I'm going to use it as an opportunity to teach my disciples to beware of those guys. You know? And there's always that crowd in town where parents are like, beware of those guys. Don't be around them. My dad used to say, you are who your friends are. And you know what? You are. The people you hang out with the most, beware of them. Because they're going to have good qualities, but I guarantee the, the bad qualities will rub off easier than the good ones will. So what he says there is, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what's he talking about there? Is he talking about bread? Well, the reality is, is he's talking about the Pharisees and their teaching. The, the way that they've taken God's word and perverted it to mean how they can make sure that everyone knows they're righteous. So he's saying, beware of that because it's a slippery slope. Don't find your righteousness in doing good things. Find your righteousness in me and the relationship you have with me. Be soft enough to receive that. But the disciples, they're like me. They're like, hey, we're going on a boat trip. We didn't bring any bread. You know, maybe we could have brought some granola bars. We could have, you know, hey, let's get a sandwich before we go. They're always worried about satiating their appetite physically. That's not a bad thing. You know, eating food keeps us alive. I'm not against that at all. But the reality is, is that we're so consumed about where we're going to get our next meal, we might just miss out on the spiritual meal that's going to affect us for eternity. Because that, that sandwich from McDonald's will keep you alive, but only for so long you'll need another meal. But the Word of God remains forever. When it's sown in our heart and it grows a plant and it brings forth righteousness, that's what gets us to the Father. <clears throat> so, verse 16 says, They... His disciples reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread that he said this about the leaven. Now, <laughs> they're missing the point. You know, they're, they're worried about their next meal. And so they're like, oh, no, he's mad at us because we didn't bring enough bread. <laughs> and so Jesus, being aware of this, because he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart, he can divide through our thoughts. He, he knows our emotions. He knows what's really going on inside. So Jesus, being aware of it, verse 17, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart, is your heart still hardened? Because you can imagine, they just left these Pharisees, and they're going, man, those Pharisees are really missing it. Don't they know they should be on the boat with us following Jesus? They thought they had it all together. And they're like, uh, uh, we forgot bread. You know, and he's saying, he's saying to them, are your hearts still hard? Don't worry about the Pharisees. Don't compare yourselves with them. You're you. You've been with me. You should know better. And so he starts to ask them based on their experience with them. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And you could see them kind of with tail tucked between their legs. They're going, uh, 12, <laughs> 12, we saw it, you know. Verse 20, 
Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. <laughs> so he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? Why aren't you getting this? They've got one loaf. They've got, assuming, 12. Seven went to 4,000. I'm not good at math, but I think they got enough. And so on one side, he has this group. I think he's frustrated. I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm reading that into it. But he's frustrated. He's like, you don't get it. I'm here to give you the truth of God. And you're all worried about your next meal. So on one side, he has a group completely consumed by keeping religious prestige and power. And they want Jesus out of the way because he's kind of getting in on their little kingdom. While all he is trying to do is to show them that they're missing the point. And if that's not bad enough, the guys that have been with him all along from the very beginning, on the other side, Jesus' disciples are so worried about having bread to eat that they're completely consumed with where they will get their next meal. So Jesus reminds them that every time they have had their very little bread for a great multitude in a desert place, he's always provided. He's always divided that bread, gave thanks to the Father, and they've had plenty. He provides. So to both groups, Jesus desires to get them to focus on what matters most. I think that Jesus is desiring to teach them a great lesson here. And I believe that he desires to teach us a great lesson through his interactions with these two small groups. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And that's where we'll end tonight. Matthew chapter 6. I don't know about you guys, but I have a tendency to be so enamored, focused, and distracted by the things of this world that are not necessarily bad things, but they get in way of my view. It's like going swimming. You know, if you're in a river and there's this rushing water coming through, oftentimes if there's a guy upstream of you walking in the water, if you're underwater with your goggles on, you won't see anything. And that's what the things of this world do. They muddy the waters and they cause us to be distracted and to miss out on the one good thing the good thing that's going to get us all the way through no matter what. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, it says, he says to the ones he's speaking to there, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, they don't plant, nor reap, they don't gather into barns, Yet your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies or the flowers of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, they don't make their own clothes. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, he says, the conclusion, do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
So I guess the question I would ask is, what are the things that, whether they're good or bad, distract you from seeking God's righteousness? The Pharisees completely missed it. They were seeking their own righteousness. They weren't seeking God's kingdom. They were trying to build a following. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be popular. They wanted everybody to know. And then the disciples are worried about bread. You know, and bread's not a bad thing. Seeking your own righteousness is. Bread isn't. But the reality is, is that notoriety, while it is a bad thing, can be used by God. And bread, a meal that sustains us for a day, can cause us to be able to do what we do. I ate lunch today. It's giving me energy to proclaim God's word. But if those two things, or anything for that matter, get in the way of you worshiping God and seeking His righteousness, then they're bad things. Just like money. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. It causes us to take our focus off of what matters most. And so, I guess I'd just ask you, which one are you? Are you a Pharisee? Are you seeking your own righteousness? Or are you a disciple like me who tends to kind of try to find some bread? Both of which will not get you to heaven. But the Son will. So Father, thank you so much for how you do reveal to us how much we need you. And you're always looking for an opportunity, just like you were the disciples here, you're looking for an opportunity to teach us. You're looking for an opportunity to speak something into our lives that we're going to need for later. So Lord, uh, help us to, as Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Lord, I thank you that you've used that, that verse as a cornerstone in my life, how you've shown me not to worry about friends, not to worry about you know, my next meal or a job or finances or, you know, even the stuff that, you know, tends to get at me day to day. You've told me to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness being imputed into my life. And as I do that, you have been so faithful to provide food, to provide a wife, uh, to provide um, a job, to provide a, a stable car that gets me everywhere I need to go. And even, you know, the things that don't matter as much, you know, like, you know, uh, nice weather on a day for fishing. Lord, thank you that you're always providing exactly what you know I need. So, Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to, to listen for that still small voice when you're trying to teach us. And, Lord, help us never to get on a high horse, puffed up in pride, thinking that we're something, when really the only person that's something is you. So, Lord, uh, thank you. And uh, I just praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.